0: It's the 6th of September, 1988, in the Masai Mara game reserve in Kenya. A cloud of orange dust billows up behind a Suzuki 4x4 as it carves a line through the dry savannah. A herd of zebra grazing in the scrub scatters, braying fearfully. Behind the wheel is 28-year-old amateur wildlife photographer, Julie Ward. Julie has been traveling in Africa for 11 months and is confident driving the dirt roads of the game reserve alone. But she's keeping a watchful eye on the lights on her dashboard today. She's only just got the car back from the garage after the fuel pump broke a few days ago. Populated with lions, leopards, wolves and hyenas, the Mara is not somewhere for unscheduled stops. The delay caused by the previous breakdown meant she had to abandon her plans to watch and photograph the annual wildebeest migration from Tanzania's Serengeti. With no further chance for game viewing, Julie now faces a long five-hour drive back to Nairobi. Julie pushes the Suzuki on through the dust, determined to get back to the city before dark falls. She's only got a few days left in Africa before she's due to fly home, and she's looking forward to seeing her landlord and his wife for a farewell dinner, too. The dirt road she's on is level, clear, and relatively well maintained for a Kenyan highway. But it is the longest route through the park. There are a number of smaller tracks which could feasibly cut vital time from her journey. She glances at her watch, then up at the sun. A faded sign off to the right, barely legible under thick dust, marks one of those shortcuts now. It wouldn't be the first time she'd veered off the main road in the park. It's often the best way of finding the more elusive animals. Still, Julie hesitates at the turning. According to the map, it should take her through the currently dry bed of the Sands River and set her on the road to Nairobi. Could save about half an hour, but it's an isolated trek. Should she risk doing it alone? Tragically, Julie never arrives in Nairobi. In fact, she never leaves the Maasai Mara. What follows is an international murder investigation that reaches the highest levels of the Kenyan government. Multiple police forces from both Kenya and Britain, including a team of detectives from Scotland Yard, take part. For over 30 years, the driving force and only continuity in the search for Julie's killer is her devastated father, John Ward. He uses millions of pounds of his own money and relentlessly follows every lead during hundreds of visits to Kenya. John's life has been dedicated to finding out what happened to his daughter, Julie, on that September afternoon in 1988. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. 55-year-old John Ward is wrestling with a rising sense of anxiety about his daughter. Throughout her travels in Africa, Julie has been very good at keeping in touch with him, letting him know how she's getting on, where she is, and where she's heading. But John Ward hasn't heard from his daughter for several days now. What's particularly worrying him is that she was due to fly back to England today, so it's even stranger that she's not been in touch. His worries are confirmed when the phone rings. He answers, hoping to hear Julie's voice on the line. Instead, it's Paul and Natasha Weld Dixon, the elderly couple that Julie has been renting a cottage from in Nairobi. They say that they're worried that Julie is missing and explain that she had some car trouble in the Masai Mara. They were expecting her back at the cottage on the 6th of September, but when she didn't show up, they assumed that her Suzuki had let her down again. They tell John they've been planning to take her out for dinner on the 9th for her last night in Africa. And when she still hadn't got in touch by yesterday evening, they really began to worry. They've reported it to the police, but an errant tourist isn't high on their priority list. John Ward's panic is immediate. Having reached out to the British consulate in Nairobi and getting a similarly lackluster response, he drops everything and books himself on the next flight to Kenya. If no one else cares where his daughter is, he'll find her himself. As a successful hotelier, John Ward is a wealthy man. The moment his feet hit African soil on the 12th of September, he sets about organizing a search. He contracts five private aircraft to scour the entire 1,500-kilometer-square area of the Maasai Mara for any signs of Julie or her car. Meanwhile, John sets about searching for her at all of the camping areas within the park. A clerk at the Sand River Gate had a record that Julie signed out of the camp at 2.30 p.m. on the 6th of September. He says she drove off in the direction of Kikaruk Lodge. But that's all John can glean. In general, his questions are met with cautious silence. Dark falls quickly in the reserve. Sunset is a brief but spectacular experience, and as the orange glow fades, the park becomes the domain of nocturnal predators and scavengers. The search must be called off for now. John is beside himself with worry, but there's nothing more they can do today. The following morning on September the 13th, there's a breakthrough. One of the search pilots spots Julie Suzuki abandoned on the banks of the Sand River. John rushes to the site, no doubt his heart racing, his mind a tortuous mix of fear and hope. What will he find? Is Julie alive? Is she hurt? Arriving in the vehicle, he finds the letters SOS have been daubed on the roof in dirt. The path she's apparently taken is well off the main road. In fact, it's barely even a track. John is convinced Julie is neither reckless nor naive enough to have taken this route of her own volition. Closer inspection suggests that the car got stuck in the soft sand on the riverbank. With sticks and branches now wedged under the wheels, it looks like Julie tried to dig her way out of the mess. Perhaps she scrawled the SOS message on the roof to alert any passing aircraft. Worryingly, there is no sign of Julie. Did she really decide to head out to find help on foot with wild predators all around? Later that afternoon, chief game warden Simon McCalla and a team of rangers spot a dark shadow on the ground. It's the remains of a campfire. He suspects potential poachers. The fire has been set under a huge tree. Over 10 feet off the ground, the underside of its canopy appears to have been scorched, the sign of a ferocious blaze. The unmistakable odor of petrol explains the fire's intensity. No poacher would have lit a fire that big. Accompanying McCullough is the only police constable on duty in the park. He now bends to investigate the cooled embers. Peering closer, he sees something that shocks him. The burnt remains of a human leg. The constable immediately calls the discovery in, requesting support from his colleagues at Sand River Police Station. Above the chirps of birds and crickets, the Masai Mara air soon thrums with a distant vibration. It grows stronger, becoming the angry clatter of incoming helicopter blades. As the aircraft hovers and sends the savannah dust swirling, the ranger's hearts sink. They can guess the identity of the passenger, the father, whose world is about to crumble. Arriving in the remote clearing, a distraught John Ward is presented with the hideous truth that a human body has been destroyed here. A dismembered leg, part of a human jaw complete with dental work, and a lock of hair have been found. John drops to his knees, scrabbling through the ashes, He searches for something he can conclusively say belonged to Julie. The stench from the ashes must be unbearable. Burnt flesh and fuel, his hands covered in the oily black, he sits back. There is nothing here that he can positively identify as hers, but in his already breaking heart, he believes that these remains must be his daughters. The search for the missing Julie is brought to an end. As the police remove evidence from the site, John can now only wait for confirmation of his worst fears. The death of a young Western woman in Kenya's prime tourist location quickly makes international news and is the last thing authorities want. Despite the terrible scene of the fire, the smell of fuel and the presence of human remains that are presumably Julie's, incredibly local police play down suspicion of foul play. They point out that there was no blood at the site and no sign of a struggle. They seem determined to find some other, less malicious explanation as how two parts of a human body may have ended up in a fire pit in the Masai Mara. The initial conclusion is that, having got stuck in the riverbed, Julie walked into the bush to find help. They go on to claim that she must have then been killed and devoured by wild animals. There is no attempt to explain how her remains might have ended up being doused in fuel and set alight. On the 15th of September, John Ward finally gets the news he's been dreading. The remains are indeed Julie's. The report is shared with him by Kenyan pathologist Dr. Shaker. In contradiction to the police's theory about an accident involving wild animals, Dr. Shaker says that Julie's leg and jaw were both cleaved with a large and very sharp blade. In his considered view, Julie was murdered. They are words no father should have to hear. Yet somehow John steals himself. He is determined to see the killer brought to justice. Kenyan police, however, are quick to refute Dr. Shaker's official findings. In fact, when they next talk to John, they have a new theory. They now believe Julie was first struck by lightning and then eaten by predators. It's hard to imagine how John must have reacted to such a preposterous and insulting suggestion. Aside from the pathologist's report, he has seen the evidence himself. He knows the truth. But the police stand firm. That's their conclusion. Perhaps... Not surprisingly, when the pathologist's report is finally released to the public, some of Dr. Shaker's language has been changed. Where he'd previously described the wounds as clean cut, now they are torn. There is also no mention that the remains were exposed to fire. This version of the autopsy now aligns completely with the police's assertion that she was attacked by animals. But John is a clear cover-up. But why? Are the authorities really so worried about the impact of Julie's murder on tourism that they're willing to falsify reports? It would appear so. John takes matters into his own hands. He decides to fly what remains of his daughter home and will begin his own investigation there. Before leaving Nairobi, he seeks out the pathologist, Dr. Shaker. John has been trying in vain to meet him to ask why and how his report had changed. He finally accosts him outside his hotel. Standing in the crowded street, the doctor seems nervous. Cryptically, Dr. Shaker says to him, everything is in order. When you get to England, you will see. John demands to know why the original report was changed. But trying to pull away, Shaker just repeats himself, Yes, yes, you will see when you get home. Just before slipping into the bustling crowd, he shouts, you will understand why I could not speak. Is John getting closer to the truth? Did the police force Dr. Shaker to change his report to match their ridiculous and offensive account? Any father would quite rightly be beside himself for the way his daughter's murder is being treated. But how to proceed? That night, with thoughts of corruption rattling through his troubled mind, John flies home. In the hold, beneath his feet, in two metal caskets, are the remains gathered from the Masai Mara fire pit. Having encountered nothing but disappointment, disinterest and dishonesty, John arrives in the UK determined to get to the truth. Back in the UK, two separate British pathologists get to work on their own examinations. Both doctors agree Julie's dismembered leg was cut off with a sharp blade before being doused in petrol and set alight. The size of the blade would match with a weapon known as a panga, a Kenyan machete. Both agree that Julie was murdered. For John, the battle lines are now drawn. He vows there and then that he will not rest until he finds Julie's killer even if he has to do it alone.
1: I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed. Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free. Only on Spotify. For the next six months,
0: John Ward continues to fly back and forth between the UK, Nairobi, and the Maasai Mara, conducting his own inquiries and gathering evidence. He meets nothing but lies, illogical statements, and silence at every turn. The stench of corruption and conspiracy hangs over every interaction. In April 1989, after relentless pressure from John, the Kenyan superintendent has finally had enough he announces that their investigation is now closed. Their final, now even more ridiculous, verdict is that Julie took her own life and the animals subsequently destroyed her remains. They say she tried to hack herself to death with a panga and when she failed, she set herself on fire. John's distress is mounting, but so is his determination. Absolutely livid, John does the only thing he can to keep the case open. He contests the Kenyan pathology report. As a result, in Nairobi, a coroner's inquest is held between August and October 1989. With the findings from John's two independent examinations laid out, the presiding magistrate has no choice but to declare that Julie was murdered by person or persons unknown. The big shock, however, Is that he orders that no further investigation is required. Case closed. Try telling her father that. John continues to rail and shout, and his accusations are not well received by the Kenyan authorities. The relationship between Britain and its rebellious former colony is strained at the best of times, and the murder of this young Brit is proving to be a real thorn in the side of its president Daniel Moy. After more than a decade in power and having fought off a coup to stay there, his message of maintaining safe and peaceful Kenya is essential to managing Western criticism of his authoritarian rule. In a meeting with the British Foreign Secretary Douglas Hurd at the end of 1989, President Moy admits that solving the murder has proved to be beyond the abilities of his own police. In the face of John's accusations of deliberate state obstruction, in a surprising move, President Moy requests the help of the world's premier detective force, Scotland Yard. Finally, John sees a glimmer of hope. Whether incompetence, as the President claims, or corruption, as John suspects, at least now they can start afresh. Surely, Scotland Yard will get to the truth of the matter. After a two-week review by one of the yard's superintendents, it's agreed there are huge gaps in the original investigation and there is a murder case to answer. For the first time since he found his daughter's remains, John Ward must feel hopeful that he has someone on his side of the investigation. I don't want this gathering dust, the superintendent reassures him. In February 1990, Scotland Yard detectives Searle and Shipper arrive in Nairobi. Now reluctantly assisted by the Kenyan officer in charge of the original investigation, they set about unpicking the facts from the fiction, and they've got their work cut out. Nearly 18 months have passed since Julie was killed. Any forensic evidence that might have existed is likely long since destroyed by time or the elements. It's hard to know if the detectives truly believe they can still catch the killer, but they are part of an elite organisation, and the very least they will do is clean up all of the errors made in that first, inept inquiry. They're not long into their own investigation, shuttling between the chaotic city of Nairobi and the arid splendour of the Masai Mara, when they begin to realise that the original police work was not just inept, but possibly willfully so. A disturbing lack of care was shown by the local force, which led to significant errors and oversights. A brief search of the records from the Mara campsites reveal there were 183 tourists camping in the park at the time. Apparently, none of them were interviewed by the police, and all of them have now moved on. An even bigger error was that not a single ranger working in the park had been questioned. It seems highly logical to both detectives that those working in the park, those armed with the kinds of weapons that dismembered Julie, should be treated as possible suspects. The fact that they've not even been interviewed rings alarm bells. When they ask for a list of names of the rangers who'd been on duty, local police tell them no records are kept. However, when they ask for the same list in the park, they're in for a surprise. Firstly, it seems the reserve chief warden, Simon McCullough, has mysteriously and suddenly been replaced. Not only this, but his successor promptly produces a list of 34 rangers who'd been on site in September 1988. Within a single day, 21 of those rangers have been summoned for interviews with the Scotland Yard officers. The remainder follow within the next week. While most of the Rangers have nothing to add to the investigation, Searle and Shipley begin to focus on one particular isolated Ranger post near to where Julie's Jeep was found. Before leaving for Kenya, the detectives managed to spend hours with John Ward, going through every bit of evidence he'd gathered, every suspicion he has, and every anomaly he's identified. Something John feels was never pursued adequately is the fact that a small lithium camera battery and a toothpaste tube of the brand Julie used were both found at the Ranger post. It was a fact dismissed by the police at the time, but John remains convinced that they are proof Julie was at the Ranger post at some point before she was murdered. Normally, five Rangers are assigned to each post, but on the 6th of September 1988, three were on leave. That leaves only two, both local men, Jonah Magiroy and Peter Kippeen, and to the detectives from Scotland Yard, their statements are suspicious to say the least. Both men say they never patrol further than 500 metres from the post, and certainly not as far as the gully where Julie's car was found. This contradicts their recorded movements on other days. They also claim not to know the area well. But as two local lads, they would likely know the whole reserve like the backs of their hands. Are they lying? If so, why? And how had these two been overlooked as suspects? After just two weeks in the country, Scotland Yard detectives Searle and Shipley begin to form an opinion of what really happened to Julie. Despite everything John had provided them with in terms of evidence, research, theory, and speculation, they are obliged to draw their own conclusions. And draw them they do. The two rangers' suspect statement, coupled with the fact that they were perhaps deliberately ignored by the original police inquiry, mean that Searle and Shipley are convinced the men are responsible for Julie's murder. They believe the rangers discovered Julie in her car while patrolling for poachers, They then likely brought her back to their ranger post under the false offer of help. There, detectives presume they held her against her will before killing her and dismembering and destroying her body. All they need to do now is prove it. A small team of local police, led by British detectives, descend on the ranger post and its surrounding tin huts, ready to search for the evidence they need. As they open the door on the first hut, even the local men step back. The smell coming from the hot tin shack is overpowering. Years of discarded food, clothes and general rubbish lie decomposing on the dusty floors. One of the Kenyans covers his nose and mouth, muttering angrily that it hasn't been cleaned for years. But that is exactly what Searle and Shipley were hoping for. If they're going to find any evidence that Julie was here, it will be hidden amongst this rotting waste. Bracing themselves against the foul stench, the team sets to work. By the end of the day, they're ready to send dozens of bin bags back to the UK for detailed forensic analysis. If they're going to get an arrest warrant, they'll need proof rather than suspicion. For now, under Kenyan law, They're allowed to detain their two suspects without charge. And that's what they do. The two Rangers are taken into police custody. The case is alive once again. But when John Ward hears the news, he's far from pleased. He too has studied the movements of the park employees and has previously stated that he doesn't believe Julie was killed by any of the Rangers. Not only has Scotland Yard sidelined him in their investigation, He thinks their line of inquiry is a waste of time. He believes there are far more compelling leads that would be better off exploring. As it turns out, the two rangers are only held in custody for a few days before being released with the reluctant agreement of Searle and Shipley. It's decided that Kenyan police will keep tabs on them and arrest them the moment concrete forensic evidence is found. Feeling as though they've done all they can for now, Searle and Shipley return to England, their hopes still pinned on the yard's forensic labs finding the evidence they need. As the months drag on, results remain negative. Nothing in those bags comes back to Julie. But the detectives are single-minded in their conviction. The circumstantial evidence is compelling. The battery and toothpaste tube police initially disregarded, coupled with the men's dubious statements and obscured record of their movements. But is it enough to convict them? Finally, on the 12th of February 1991, with mounting pressure from these respected detectives, Kenyan prosecutors finally concede. The two rangers are charged with Julie's murder. John is understandably concerned. Although glad of Scotland Yard's involvement, he can't help thinking the evidence is weak. In fact, He's convinced that the Rangers are little more than pawns in this case. He is sure that those higher up in the chain, like former Chief Game Warden Simon McCalla, know far more than they've ever let on. McCalla’s movements after Julie's death were highly suspect. He also feels McCalla has helped obstruct and frustrate the initial investigation. If so, why? To protect himself or someone else? Either way, John doubts it'd be for the sake of two lowly rangers. Unfortunately for John, McCalla seems to have protection from on high that makes him almost untouchable. Now, with the trial approaching, John worries that the courts will just put these two rangers on the stand, convict them and wash their hands of the case, leaving the higher-ups to go scot-free. A Scotland Yard really got it so wrong. Despite promises of a quick resolution, the trial of the two Rangers doesn't get underway until 1992. When it does, it is as confused and haphazard as the original investigation was. While the prosecution does their best to form a plausible case, their lack of concrete evidence is a lingering problem. Soon, suspicion shifts to a clerk in the game reserve who falsified Julie's signature on an exit ledger from the camp gate. Then, later in the trial, the finger moves to the police constable on duty at the time. Eventually, the whole trial dissolves into chaos. Who exactly is the accused here? In the end, all four men are acquitted due to the lack of evidence. John Ward is frustrated, but unsurprised. He's been saying all along that the Rangers were a distraction but there is hope. Surprisingly, at the end of the trial, the presiding judge recommends an investigation into the former chief game warden, Simon McCalla. Having heard the events surrounding Julie's death, the judge feels that the chief warden's actions are suspicious, exactly what John has always said himself. With their case against the Rangers thrown out, detectives finally agree to look a little closer at Simon McCalla. The first question to look at is why, as Chief Warden, McCalla did not actively take part in the search for the missing Julie Ward. Worse than that, why didn't he order any of his 113 team of rangers to help with the hunt for Julie? Instead, he left John Ward to lead the search alone, with no working knowledge of the park. Aside from his reluctance to help in the search, John's suspicion of McCalla centers around his conduct after Julie's vehicle was located. In his original statement, McCalla claimed he first arrived at the car after the police. Yet McCalla also claimed that he saw various items belonging to Julie. Nothing important, a couple of beer bottles, a map, and a pair of binoculars on the passenger seat. But they are all items that had already been removed by local police before he supposedly arrived on the scene. So how could he have seen them? It's a small but significant discrepancy. As they investigate further, Searle and Shipley discover that there was a Swiss TV crew in the park at the time, filming a documentary. The crew offered to help with the search, but McCalla allegedly told them to mind their own business. That same crew reported spotting a number of other potential witnesses around the area at the time of Julie's disappearance. In fact, one person they named is rather a prominent figure in Kenyan society, Jonathan Moy, the son of Kenyan President Daniel Moy. This alone might not garner much attention, but it just so happens that it's not the first time Jonathan Moy's name has cropped up. Early on in their investigation, Scotland Yard established a phone line for anonymous tips. Most calls were dismissed as bogus, but one tip that came in had advised them to investigate Jonathan Moy, who was supposedly staying nearby. John Ward certainly thinks all the discrepancies and obstructions might be explained by the uncomfortable proximity of the president's son to such a high-profile murder. But there's nothing to connect Jonathan Moy directly with Julie present. Still, it's another mysterious thread in an ever-expanding web. All he can do is follow his instinct, and that tells him to stick with Simon McCalla. Reading through the handful of statements taken from park workers, one witness told how, days after Julie was discovered, McCalla was allegedly summoned to meet with the Kenyan president. Within a couple of days, The chief warden was no longer on duty. At first, his fellow rangers were told he was on leave, but it quickly transpired he'd been suspended. Was he fired for failing to stop a murder? Botching the investigation? Or was there something else going on? The involvement of such high-level figures revitalizes John's belief that Julie's murder has been the subject of a state cover-up. Reluctant to investigate conspiracy theories, however, Searle and Shipley remain focused on the two rangers. They leave the Kenyan police and a frustrated John to continue their probe into the disgraced game warden. The detectives return to England, with the case still unsolved and Julie's killer still at large. But have they left too soon? Just as Scotland Yard beat their retreat... A witness finally comes forward, one with an astonishing tale to tell. In 1992, a government whistleblower, or dissident, depending on your point of view, a man called Valentine Kodipo, opens up about his time working for the notoriously corrupt Moi regime. His detailed statement is given to the Forum for Restoration of Democracy, a political movement battling to end the oppressive single party system under President Moy. Amazingly, as part of Kadipo's testimony, he claims that he witnessed Julie's murder. Not only this, but that the killers were high ranking individuals in Moy's government. He claims these individuals were involved in secret militia training camps hidden in the Mara Reserve. Apparently, when Julie went off-road, she ran into one of these covert encampments. A fatal error. He goes on record about what he saw that day. Everyone in the group was whipping her with hippo hide whips and shouting questions at her about her movements and what she knew about them. They thought she had been spying on them. It's an incredible accusation. But is it to be trusted? It could be genuine witness testimony. Then again, it could also be political opportunism. Kadipo indicates he can identify the culprits, but he stops short of naming names. John Ward's head must be spinning. Along with McCullough's suspicious behavior, the meeting with the president days after the murder and the reluctance of local police, it all tracks and yet it seems outrageous. The Kenyan government, of course, denies the claim, as well as the existence of any such militia camps. And with Daniel Moyes still very much in power, no one will comment on the suggestion that his son was involved in the murder of a young British woman. With no new evidence and only the weight of suspicion to guide them, the investigation of Simon McCalla also fizzles out. For John Ward, it must feel as though he's losing the fight. After so many years of searching and relentlessly following even the smallest leads, the loss of impetus must be a bitter pill to swallow. Someone out there knows what happened to Julie. In fact, someone out there is responsible. Having collated all the information uncovered by Scotland Yard and the Kenyan police, he now firmly believes President Daniel Moy did cover up Julie's murder. Whether his son is personally involved or not, or other high-ranking officials, is impossible to know. As for motive, was he simply protecting the country's image, its lucrative tourist trade, or concealing secret paramilitary forces? He can't say, but one thing is certain. Julie's murderer is being protected and the crime has been systematically swept under the carpets. John is hardly equipped to fight a state conspiracy. But worse still, John now also suspects that the British consulates, not wanting to provoke President Moy, also agreed to turn a blind eye to his cover-up of Julie's death. Anyone would forgive John if he lost heart now. He's done as much as was humanly possible to expose the truth. But that's not John. Even if every detective in Kenya and Britain gives up on Julie, he never will. He pushes all other theories and suspects aside and remains focused on the man most closely connected to the crime, the man who found Julie's body, Simon McCullough. Get him, and you might get Moy and anyone else responsible. John's campaign against the former game warden is relentless. For the next few years, he continues to lobby the government to take action. Amazingly, finally, in 1997, nearly a decade after Julie's murder, a new investigation is suddenly opened by the Kenyans. Even more incredibly, this second investigation by Kenyan police suddenly claims to have sufficient evidence to charge Simon McCalla. He is arrested for Julie's murder July 1998. To John, it must feel like a miracle has occurred. The truth is, it's an act of political theater. President Moy is under increasing international pressure to appease pro-democracy protests, and solving this long-running murder saga wouldn't hurt. Simon McCalla is a sacrifice he's happy to make. But with tragic inevitability, When the case comes to trial in September, 1999, McCalla is acquitted. John remains convinced that even if he didn't physically murder Julie, McCalla knows more about it than he's ever admitted. But this is true for so many involved in this tragic case. He must feel like the last roll of the dice has been a bust. What more can he do? Over the next few years, John remains convinced that President Moy is the key perpetrator of the cover-up and that his son Jonathan is the man behind Julie's death. In one instance, a woman who travels around the Masai Mara for work secretly presses a note into his hand, a note naming Jonathan Moy as the killer. Later, he speaks with her and she confirms she's heard it spoken of in the local villages. Later still, John seeks out the Kenyan whistleblower Valentin Kadipo, who is now hiding in Denmark. He too confirms that the president's son is the murderer, or at least his men acted on his orders. Anonymous tip-offs, local rumors, and various bits of guarded information all keep mounting up, pointing to Jonathan Moy's involvement. But everyone is too scared to speak openly, never mind stand witness. Even after President Daniel Moy is finally removed from office in 2002, he remains a powerful figure in Kenyan politics. No one is brave enough to officially testify against him or his son. So time drags on. Then, in a surprising turn of events, in March 2009, the original investigating officer from the Kenyan police approaches John. Perhaps racked with guilt over his own investigation, he says he wants to talk about the murder. His use of the word murder surprises John. After all, this is the man who insisted the case was suicide, that she had been mauled by animals. When the two men meet, the officer confesses he was forced to cover up the murder by his superiors. He confesses that park rangers were interviewed and it became clear they had been sworn to silence most were terrified even simon McCullough was nervy and similarly tight-lipped during questioning so when the officer discovered that jonathan moy was staying on his farm near the park he assumed the worst finally the officer tells john that when he revealed his suspicion to his bosses he was told forcefully to look somewhere else the rest of his time on the investigation he says was spent desperately trying to divert attention and hamper progress. Unsurprisingly, the officer insists he will not give evidence. It seems he just wanted to salve his conscience by giving a grieving father the truth. Finally, John has the answers he's been searching for for so long. In summary, John reaches his own tragic conclusion. Jonathan Moy came across Julie, took a liking to her, and after being rebuffed, raped her. Fearing consequences, he then ordered his guards to kill her. After that, numerous people were in some way involved in the cover-up, including his father, the President, and Simon McCallagh, the Chief Warden, and perhaps, in its own cowardly way, a pliable British Foreign Office. Needless to say, all those named deny any involvement or wrongdoing. In a final, forlorn hope, John reports the latest revelations to Scotland Yard. They take him seriously, and a new team is sent to Kenya. The first investigation may have focused on the wrong people, but the detectives did what they could under difficult circumstances. This time, though, the team is led by John Yates, head of the counter-terrorism unit. With advances in DNA analysis, there is a hope that new forensic evidence can be uncovered but answers in the case which has dogged everyone for so long continue to remain elusive. The only person ever willing to testify against Jonathan Moy, Valentin Kodipo, has now passed away. Despite a number of other suggested leads, the detective simply can't pull together enough evidence or witnesses to bring charges against one of the most powerful families in Kenya. Ultimately, this investigation like those which ran before it, comes to nothing too. Years pass frustratingly slowly, but John remains convinced that he can bring Moy to justice. In 2018, he asks for a DNA sample from Moy. As with so many of John's attempts, the request is ignored. When Jonathan Moy passes away from pancreatic cancer in 2019, Speculation about his involvement in Julie's murder hits the papers once again. He goes to his grave denying the charges. His father, the indomitable President Daniel Moy, also dies just a couple of months later, in February 2020. With both men gone, will terrified witnesses finally speak up, John offers a nearly £80,000 as a reward for information. None comes. Now, in his 80s, John Ward feels he has the answers he wanted, but not the closure. For Scotland Yard, although their investigation is at an end, they'll always remain open to new leads. They maintain they did their best in impossible circumstances. For now, the game reserve murder must remain frustratingly officially unsolved. And John Ward's quest for justice continues. next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's July 1948, London is in the grip of a heat wave which is seeing daytime temperatures soar to 35 degrees Celsius. But it's not the stifling heat that's causing the bead of sweat on Donald Fish's brow. The former Scotland Yard detective is now head of security at London's Heathrow Airport. And he's just learned of an audacious plot by some of London's top villains to steal half a million pounds from his customs warehouse naturally, he calls on his old friend at the Yard to help him stop it. The heist and the ensuing bloody battle enters Scotland Yard folklore as the most brutal but most successful sting operation in the Flying Squad's history, with both cops and robbers carrying the scars from the Battle of Heathrow for the rest of their lives. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler Drew Cole and Pascal Hughes developed by Julian Warro for Parcast. series produced by Addison Nugent series consultant Roger Morris hosted by me John Hopkins written by Sean Coleman supervising editor Kevin Pham sound design by Jacob Booth sound supervisor Tom Pink edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer mix master by Jacob Booth music by Oliver Baines and Dori McCauley
1: Darnell Ishmael, this February on Solved Murders. Join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. deputy marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves. No master but duty. Listen for free. Only on Spotify.